Well, good morning. My name is Nate. If we don't know each other, I'd love to meet you at some point. Um, We are continuing our series, uh, walking through the book of Acts. And the point of Acts is that God is on a mission in the world to send and save. And so I thought that um, when I was planning for this series, I thought something that, that might be cool is to tell some stories of missionaries periodically throughout the series of just men and women over the years who have gone Um, to embrace this calling. And um, in light of uh, Black History Month, I thought we would start with um, a black missionary. Um, Many people call him the first missionary ever sent from North America. Um, His name is George Lilly. George Lilly, this is a picture of him. So to start today, I just want to share his story with you as a way of remembering uh, men and women who have come before us, um, who share the same faith that we have. Um, So, uh, George was born into a slave family in 1750 in Virginia, and he moved to Georgia when he was a young boy. And um, in in 1773, so he was 23 years old, he was sitting in um, a church service, and it was a white church, and the pastor was preaching, and George fell under a deep conviction of his sin as he was sitting in this church service. And he realized that his good works were insufficient to save him and his sin condemned him to hell. And he wrestled with that for about six months. And he remained in this state of conviction and despair for six months thinking about his fate, knowing that if he were to die, he would be separated from God and that he would be in hell. And then... After about six months of that, he found the peace of Christ. Here's what he says. The more I heard or read, the more I saw that I was a condemned sinner before God. I saw the condemnation in my own heart. I found no way wherein I could escape the damnation of hell, except only through the merits of my dying Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ which caused me to make intercession with Christ for the salvation of my poor immortal soul. And so he believes the gospel and he prays shortly after his conversion that God would use him to help spread the message of Jesus, to send him so that others might be saved. And so he started by um, reading hymns and explaining them to fellow slaves. He had a master who uh, taught him to read and write. And so he was able to uh, take old hymns and just explain them, read them to um, fellow slaves and explain the gospel to him. Um, He said, I endeavored to instruct the people of my own color in the word of God. Then um, shortly after that, he was invited to preach in the white church, which I have to think would have been just a, a crazy experience for everyone. He was invited to preach in the white church and they recognized his gifts and his calling. And so they ordained him to ministry. Uh, His master was a deacon in the church and soon granted him freedom so that he could devote himself to gospel ministry. And so he goes and um, he eventually planted what many historians believe was the first black church in North America. Um, And then eventually his former master, Um, was killed uh, for remaining loyal to the British during the revolution. 
And so because uh, his ally during this time was mostly sympathetic to the British, uh, he moved to Jamaica. And he got to Jamaica in 1784, and he planted a small church with only four people who were all refugees from America. By 1791, so seven years, by 1791, he had baptized nearly 400 people. And eventually thousands of people would come to faith in Christ through his ministry. There would be a couple of men who would become Christians in his church, who would become missionaries to Nova Scotia. Um, and then another who would um, plant a church in Georgia. Um, eventually thousands of people would come to faith in Christ through his ministry. And then here's um, a summary of his ministry uh, written by one of his co-workers named Thomas Swiegel. Um, this is in a letter that, this, uh, that Thomas wrote to um, a man in Britain. He says this, we have great reason in this island, talking about Jamaica, we have great reason in this island to praise and glorify the Lord for his goodness and loving kindness in sending his blessed gospel amongst us by our well-beloved minister, Brother Lily. We were living in slavery to sin and Satan, and the Lord hath redeemed our souls to a state of happiness to praise his glorious and ever blessed name. And we hope to enjoy everlasting peace by the promise of our Lord and master, Jesus Christ. The blessed gospel is spreading wonderfully in this island. Believers are daily coming into the church and we hope in a little time to see Jamaica become a Christian country. This is in the 1700s. And notice that the same themes that they are rejoicing in, we are gathered around today, that there is salvation in no one else but the name of Jesus. And we want to see the gospel spread. And that's what they were experiencing. And that's what they were praying they would continue to see experience. And that's what we want to see. And that is the point of Acts, is that God is on a mission in the world to send and save. And we are not the inventors of this. We need not think that we've got to be the greatest innovators of all time. Instead, we have a great cloud of witnesses who have gone before us that we can learn from in this. God is on a mission to send and save. That's what the book of Acts is about. The book of Acts tells the story about how the message of Jesus got from Jerusalem to Rome. And today, we're in Acts chapter 2 with the birth of the church. And so if you have a Bible... Acts chapter 2 is where we'll be today. Um, Acts chapter 2 is a significant turning point in history. It's a significant turning point in the story of God and his work with people in the world. Today, um, we're starting in Acts chapter 2. We're actually going to be in Acts chapter 2 for the next three weeks. The reason we're spending so much time here is because there's a lot to cover and it's just significant. So we want to spend some time on it. By the end of Acts chapter 2, we'll have the very first local church. Um, the rest of the chapter is helping us see how did the church come about? And the reason that it's significant to answer that question is because the way that the church was formed will also be the thing that continues to reform the church into what we ought to be. And so what we're going to do today is uh, walk through um, Acts chapter 2 and get 
mostly just an overview of it, and specifically look at how the Holy Spirit works to form the church. So what is the Holy Spirit's role in this? That's what we're going to talk about. So Acts chapter 2, let's catch up with what's happening right before we jump in. So Jesus promised Acts chapter 1 verse 4 that pretty soon they would be baptized with the Holy Spirit. Then Jesus ascended to heaven. The church, which was about 120 people and not exactly the church yet, gathered together. That gets us to chapter two. When the day of Pentecost had arrived, they were all together in one place. Now, uh, Pentecost was a Jewish holiday. It was one of three holidays primarily that uh, the Jews celebrated. And they would come from all over the world to Jerusalem to celebrate this holiday. It was like our modern day Thanksgiving in the sense that they would um, remember and celebrate the harvest and what God had done for them. And in Jewish, uh, in Jewish uh, tradition, the holiday of Pentecost was associated with Moses bringing down the law from God to the people. And so um, on the day of Pentecost, they believed that Moses had received the law at Mount Sinai. Here, the, the church is about to receive something much greater than what Moses could give and something much greater than the law. The church is going to receive the spirit. They were all together in one place. Who's the all together? The 120 of them. The apostles and those who had followed Jesus and seen him be resurrected. And while they're together, here's what happens. Verse two. Suddenly a sound like that of a violent rushing wind came from heaven and it filled the whole house where they were staying. Have you ever heard a massive windstorm before? Have you ever been... uh, on the East Coast when a hurricane or a tropical storm was coming? Have you ever been in the South or the Midwest when a tornado was coming? Do you know the feeling, the sense of, of, of awe and what is happening, the alarm that goes off in you when you hear a mighty rushing wind? Do you know that feeling? There is such a mighty rush of wind that it's going to gather a crowd from all over the city. And the reason I believe that that actually happened is because that kind of thing has happened in my neighborhood before. Um, A few months ago, it was actually the day that I was smoking a turkey for the staff. uh, I just realized that for the staff, we had a staff uh, Thanksgiving thing. I was smoking a turkey and uh, there was this terrible windstorm and it picked up the gazebo thing that normally sits on top of my grill and it put it on the other side of the yard. And it was super loud and multiple neighbors were out in the street. We were all looking at each other like, what is, it? What is going on? Oh my goodness. And, and so that's why I believe that this really happened. Because if there's a mighty rushing wind, a crowd gathers. What is happening? Is everything Okay. And so there's this massive noise, but it says that this wind was coming from heaven and it's filling the whole house where they were staying. The noise of this wind is in this house with these people. 
So they heard the sound and then they saw something, verse three. They saw tongues like flames of fire that, that separated and rested on each one of them. So they see this flame, this thing that's like fire. It's like, it, it's, it's a burning flame that they see. And fire is associated with God's presence in the scriptures. Fire is what God appears to Abraham with. In Genesis, fire is what appears to Moses at the burning bush and the bush was on fire and yet not consumed. Fire is what led the people out of Egypt. Fire is what surrounded Mount Sinai. And so here, God's presence is coming down, but it's coming down like tongues. And it's dividing and resting on each one of them. All 120 of them. God's presence is coming on them. It's like they're on fire, but not consumed. Every single one of them have become little burning bushes of God's presence. And then they begin to speak. Look at verse four. They were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in different languages as the Spirit enabled them. Now, this is surprising to them. People had been filled by the Holy Spirit before. But typically, it was just one person at a time or just a small group of people and the Spirit would come upon them in order to declare something, in order to prophesy or in order to do some great work. But here, the fire has come and it's consumed, but not consumed, each one of them. The Spirit has filled each of them and the result is that they begin not to just prophesy, but to speak a different language as the Spirit enabled them. And this is shocking to the crowd who has gathered because of the mighty rushing wind that they had heard. And so Luke tells us verse 5, now there were Jews staying in Jerusalem, devout people from every nation under heaven. He's saying there were people from all over the world in Jerusalem. Why? Because it's Pentecost. And verse six, when this sound occurred, a crowd came together and was confused because each one heard them speaking in his own language. Verse seven, they were astounded and amazed saying, look, aren't all these who are speaking Galileans? Verse eight, how is it that each of us can hear them in our own native language? Do you see how that's surprising? These people are from all over the world. This is not one culture. They're not all, you know, the same and they all natively speak the same language. That's not the case. These people are from all over the world who are gathered. There are people from, there are Parthians and Medes, verse nine, Elamites, those who live in Mesopotamia and Judea and Cappadocia, Pontus and Asia, 
Phrygia and Pamphylia, Egypt and the parts of Libya near Cyrene, visitors from Rome, both Jews and converts, Cretans and Arabs. There's people from all over the world. Um, I found a map this week. I didn't think to put it on the screen, but I should have. I found a map this week that, that mapped out where all of these people are from, and it's all over the Roman world. Luke is being legitimate when he says, devout people from every nation under heaven. He's speaking of the Roman world. He's saying from all over the Roman world, people are here. Nobody is left without representation in this little meetup. People from Africa are there. People from Europe are there. People from Asia are there. And they're shocked because they've each got their own languages, their own dialects, their own accents. But there are these Galileans who are speaking with a Galilean accent, their own language. And they know there's no way that they know that language. And so they're shocked. They're astounded. And what is it that's being spoken? Verse 11. We hear them declaring the magnificent acts of God in our own tongues. There are many different languages being spoken, but there is one message. Many languages, one message. Diverse languages, one message. The message is the magnificent acts of God. And that's a little phrase that refers to God's mighty acts of salvation. Now, by the time Acts chapter 2 gets here, what is God's mighty act of salvation that would be at the forefront of everyone's mind? The life, death, resurrection, and ascension of Jesus Christ. And so these 120 all have the Holy Spirit come upon them and begin to speak in different languages the gospel. And the people are confused. They're astounded. Look at the words that is used to describe them. Verse seven, astounded and amazed. Verse 12, they were astounded and perplexed, saying to one another, what does this mean? What does this mean? Why is this happening? And then in every group, there are cynical people. And that was true in the first century too. Verse 13, some of them sneered and said, they're probably just drunk. What does this mean? Now, do you feel the, the surprise of this moment? Have you ever been to a nation where they don't primarily speak English and you get used to hearing other languages being spoken. And then all of a sudden, when you hear someone speaking your language, you're... So imagine what they are feeling. When they've come from all over the world. They don't expect anyone except the people they came with to be able to speak their language. And now here is this group who's talking about Jesus in their own language. What does this mean? The answer we're going to look at more in depth next week. 
But because I don't want to leave you completely hanging, we'll just summarize verses 14 through 36 real quick. Peter stands up and he says, here's what's happening. We're not drunk. It's 9 a.m. Come on. And then he says, this is what was spoken through the prophet Joel. And he quotes from Joel chapter 2, verse 17. And it will be, and he adds this little phrase in the last days. That's significant. We'll talk about that next week. It will be, says God, that I will pour out my spirit on all people. Then your sons and your daughters will prophesy. Your young men will see visions and your old men will dream dreams. Verse 18, I will even pour out my spirit on my servants in those days, both men and women, and they will prophesy. He says, what's happening here, what you are experiencing here, what you are witnessing here is a turning point in history. There's a new day that has dawned in God's work in the world. The days of Moses, they're over. The days of the prophetic ministry being limited to just a few, they're over. There's something new that's happening here. There is a new covenant that is being initiated here today in your presence. This is going to be testified by signs and wonders, he says, verse 19 and 20. And then verse 21, he says, then the result of this new era, the result of this of these signs and wonders will be that everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Everyone. People from all nations, he says. And then in order to help them know, well, what do, how are they going to call on the name of the Lord to be saved? What does that mean exactly? In verses 22 through 36, he just preaches the gospel. So verses 14 through 21, he says, What's happening here? It's a turning point in history. It's Joel chapter two. Then he says, verse 22 through 36, here's the message you need to know to get in on it. And what he does is just share the gospel. He shares the life of Jesus, verse 22. The death of Jesus, verse 23. The resurrection of Jesus, verses 24 through 32. The ascension of Jesus, verses 33 through 35. And then he concludes, verse 36, Therefore, let all the house of Israel know with certainty that God has made this Jesus, whom you crucified, both Lord and Messiah. That's the message. Jesus lived, he died, he's been raised, he ascended to the right hand of God, and he is Lord, he is Messiah. So the Holy Spirit has come upon these people to preach the word of God. The Holy Spirit has opened their mouths and now the Holy Spirit will open the hearts of those who were there in the crowd. Verse 37 when they heard this, they were pierced to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, brothers, what should we do? They were pierced to the heart. And Peter replied to them, repent and be baptized, each of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins. And then you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. You can get in on this too. How? 
repent of your sins. Accept the message about Jesus. That's just a couple of verses later. And then obey Jesus and get baptized. And this is not just for you, they say. This is for your children, for all who are far off, as many as the Lord our God will call. It's for the whole earth. And so with many other words, he testified and strongly urged them saying, be saved from this corrupt generation. Verse 41, so those who accepted his message were baptized. And that day about 3000 people were added to them. And then the church is formed. The church was formed because the Holy Spirit opened their mouths to speak the word of God. And then the Holy Spirit opened their hearts to receive it. The church was formed because the Holy Spirit opened mouths and opened hearts to the word of God. And this is still how churches are formed and reformed today. The Holy Spirit changes us from the inside out so that we first can hear and believe and so that we can then go and speak. The church then is a supernatural community brought about by the power of God. And this is what Jesus promised. He promised it here in Acts. He said, I'm going to send you the Father's promise, the Holy Spirit. You're going to be baptized by the Spirit. You're going to receive this new power when the Holy Spirit comes on you. But he also taught about it throughout his ministry. John chapter three, he says, if you want to enter the kingdom of God, you've got to be born of the water and the Spirit. He says, you've got to be born new. You've got to have a new birth. You've got to have a new heart. And that's what the Holy Spirit does. The church is a supernatural community of people who have received a new heart. And so for the rest of our time together this morning, I just want to talk briefly about what kind of heart does the Holy Spirit give us? What kind of heart does the Holy Spirit give us? The Holy Spirit is, is changing our desires He's changing our inclinations. He's changing the things that we want. He's changing what we care about. He's changing our heart. So what is he causing us to care about? First, a heart for holiness. The Holy Spirit is bringing about a heart for holiness in us. Where do we get that in the text? Verse 4. Then they were all filled with the Holy Spirit. He's holy. And we are not. Holiness means being set apart for the things of God. It's, it's being unique. It's, it's realizing that I exist for God. The Holy Spirit brings that about in us. This is why the Holy Spirit 
is the one who causes this message to be spoken. And then in verse 37, they're pierced to the heart and they must repent. Why? Because on our own, we are sinful. The Holy Spirit comes along to help us want holiness. This is what Jesus taught in John chapter 16, verse 8. When he comes, Jesus says, when he comes, he will convict the world about sin, righteousness, and judgment. That's what the Holy Spirit does. When George Lely is talking about hearing this word be preached and then just feeling condemned, who's doing that to him? Who's helping him see that he's condemned? Who's cutting this audience to the heart? Who's piercing them? The spirit of God is the one who convicts concerning sin. And the Holy Spirit is the one who helps us pursue holiness. Listen to Galatians chapter five. This is a key text for thinking about the Holy Spirit. Paul says, now the works of the flesh are obvious. Sexual immorality, moral impurity, promiscuity, idolatry, sorcery, hatreds, strife, jealousy, outbursts of anger, selfish ambitions, dissensions, factions. He continues, envy, drunkenness, carousing, and anything similar. I'm warning you about these things as I warned you before that those who practice such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. Jesus said, if you don't have the Holy Spirit, if you're not reborn, you can't enter the kingdom of God. Paul's saying the same thing. You can't inherit the kingdom of God with those things. What do you need? You need a new heart. You need to not want that stuff. You need to want good stuff. And so he says, but the fruit of the spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. The law is not against such things. Show me a law written against love and joy and peace. He's like, you can't. The spirit is greater than the law. It does not just merely replace the law. It's greater than the law. It does what the law could not do. So if it's the Holy Spirit at work, it will be driving you towards holiness. You will know it's the Holy Spirit driving a church when you see the church be generous, not greedy. When you see the church be hospitable, not reclusive. When you see the church be joyful, not complaining. When you see the church loving enemies, not retaliating. When you see the church at peace, not worked up about everything. When you see the church be patient, not in a hurry. When you see the church be kind, not hateful. When you see the church be honest, not deceitful. When you see the church be sexually pure, not sexually promiscuous. When you see the church be trustworthy, not corrupt. When you see the, the church be self-controlled, not self-gratifying, then you will know it's the Holy Spirit who's working in the church. The Holy Spirit gives us a heart for holiness. So let me ask you a question. Is the Holy Spirit at work in you? Is the Holy Spirit at work in you? Are you at war with your sin? Are you hungry for holiness? 
that is a mark of whether or not the Holy Spirit is at work in you. The second heart that the Holy Spirit gives us is a heart for Jesus. A heart for Jesus. Verse 11, they are declaring the magnificent acts of God in their own tongues. In verses 23 through 36, Peter, who's just been filled with the Holy Spirit, stands up and he can't help but talk about Jesus. He has a heart for Jesus. The Holy Spirit is opening our eyes to see our need for Jesus. He's opening our hearts to trust in Jesus. He's transforming us so that we become like Jesus. This is what the Holy Spirit does. The Holy Spirit magnifies Jesus. He lifts up Jesus. He draws attention to Jesus. That's his work. This is what Jesus taught, John 15. When the counselor, referring to the Holy Spirit, when the counselor comes, the one I will send you from the Father, the Spirit of truth who proceeds from the Father, he will testify about me, Jesus said. And then what do you see happen in Acts chapter two? The Holy Spirit comes and they don't just start singing random worship songs about something besides Jesus. They start talking about Jesus. The Holy Spirit gives us a heart for him. And the Holy Spirit is working to transform us into the image of Jesus. Romans 8, 29. For those he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son, so that he would be the firstborn among many brothers and sisters. So the father in this verse is the one who's working. The father has predestined that we will be conformed to the image of his son. That's Jesus. See, the basic story of our lives is that we, God has made us human beings in his image. We are made to reflect the character of God. We still do that, but in a distorted way all over the world. We are still the image of God, but we're not an accurate image always. Jesus, the true image of God, has come to the earth Jesus has come so that we will know what God is like. Jesus is the image of the invisible God. Jesus goes to a cross and he dies and he's raised so that those who have defamed the image of God can be forgiven, but not just forgiven, but also restored to the image of of God and who is the image of God? Jesus. The Holy Spirit is at work to make us like Jesus. Romans 8, 29 is about what the Father has predestined, but the whole context of Romans chapter eight is the work of the Holy Spirit. And then we get to verse 29. And he says, here's the goal of this. You're gonna look like Jesus. That's what the Holy Spirit does. He gives us a heart for Jesus. So here's a few implications of that. People driven by the Spirit cherish Jesus. They cherish the gospel. I'm going to pick on a few things in Christian culture for just a minute. 
first, it's not spirit-filled worship if Jesus is never mentioned. Being spirit-filled in worship is not about merely emotions or the vibe or the pad playing or the ambience or the feeling that you get. It's also not just crazy manifestations of things. Spirit-filled worship is responding emotionally, physically, and intellectually to God's love demonstrated in Christ. It still points at Jesus. Recently, I was, in a, I was at a charismatic uh, worship event, and it was very spirit-filled. But literally, the whole worship set, we didn't even mention Jesus or the cross at all. And I'm just sitting there, and I'm like, I know that most of these people believe in that stuff, but we are creating an emotional response right now. We're not actually celebrating the truths of the gospel. And that's what the Spirit does. If it's the Spirit that's actually at work, Jesus will be the focus. There's not a competition within the Godhead. Okay my soapbox on that. Um, but I want to clarify real quick, I'm, I'm not anti-charismatic stuff either. Like, by all means, let's pray that the Holy Spirit would fill us, be filled with the Holy Spirit, Ephesians 5. So that's not a diss on charismatic stuff per se. It's an emphasis that if it's the Spirit working, Jesus is going to be the focus. Just want to clarify that. Okay. Here's another one. It's not spirit-filled Bible study if Jesus is not worshiped. So this is just uh, so many times, I think, people who have been Christians for a long time want to go deeper in Bible study. And that is an excellent goal. I love going deep in Bible study. But if... Deep Bible study does not deepen your love for Jesus, then it's actually just foolish idolatry. Studying the Bible can be idolatry if it does not deepen your love for Jesus. Anything you're studying in the Bible, when rightly understood and applied, points to Jesus. Any theological study that you're doing, when rightly understood and applied, points to Jesus. Sometimes we talk about depth as if we're going to talk about something that doesn't result in glorying in Jesus. Anyway, okay. Let me give you a great example of what I mean by that. Recently, I was in a meeting with, um, with Barry, Pastor Barry, and we were uh, in the meeting, we were going over a bunch of deep theological things and we were thinking very deeply about these things. And we get to the end of the meeting after we've just rehearsed all of these truths and we're wordsmithing some stuff and we're working on this project. We get to the end of the meeting and he says, now I just want to worship. And that is deep Bible study. If it's just an intellectual exercise that does not result in worshiping Jesus, it's not really deep Bible study. Okay. 
Last one. It's not spirit-filled missions if Jesus is never proclaimed. Digging wells, caring for orphans, fighting human trafficking, these are all excellent things that Christians should be doing. And we should be doing them alongside lifting up the name of Jesus, proclaiming the name of Jesus. It's not spirit-filled missions if it's not in Jesus' name. You know the spirit is working when you see a heart for Jesus begin to grow. The Holy Spirit also gives us a heart for strangers. Just by nature of the fact that they are a diverse group of people, this group of people in Acts chapter two is not going to come together and have their diversity of culture and language celebrated around one message apart from the Holy Spirit making it possible. God is gathering all people, all ethnicities, all ages, all genders, all statuses in order to worship. And this means that the Holy Spirit will draw us to strangers, that is people who are not like us. Listen to just a few passages from the New Testament about this. Ephesians 2, verse 18. For through him, that's through Christ, we both have access in one spirit to the Father. So then, you are no longer foreigners and strangers, but fellow citizens with the saints and members of God's household, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets with Christ Jesus himself as the cornerstone. In him, the whole building being put together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him, you are also being built together for God's dwelling in the spirit. When the spirit of God is at work, people who are different become one under the banner of Jesus. When the spirit of God is at work, not only do they come together as one under the name of Jesus, but they also begin to live together with grace because of Jesus and the spirit. Ephesians 4, Paul goes on. Therefore, I, the prisoner in the Lord, urge you to walk worthy of the calling you have received with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, making every effort to keep the unity of the spirit through the bond of peace. There is one body and one spirit, just as you were called to one hope at your calling, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and father of all who is above all and through all and in all. What is Paul saying? He's saying, you're very different, and yet there's a unity here that's been brought about by the Spirit of God. And then, in the same way, the Spirit has equipped us with different gifts in order that we might serve one another. 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 4. Now, there are different gifts, but the same Spirit. There are different ministries, but the same Lord. And there are different activities, but the same God works all of them in each person. A manifestation of the spirit is given to each person for the common good. The Holy Spirit gives us a heart for strangers, a heart for people who are not like us. Let me ask you some questions. 
Is it obvious here in this community, this church, that we have been brought together by something beyond our cultural similarities? Is it obvious that what has brought us together is the gospel? The Holy Spirit helps people see their need for the gospel, helps them trust the gospel, and helps us live together as one under the banner of Jesus. Here's a question. Do you participate in Christian community with people who are not like you? Not the same stage of life as you, not the same age as you, not the same ethnicity as you, not the same tax bracket as you. Does your dinner table ever reflect this? How could you start? That's something that Courtney and I are talking about right now. How could we be more intentional to pursue strangers because that's what the Holy Spirit does is draw strangers together. Finally, the Holy Spirit gives us a heart for the nations. We already talked about all of the different nations that are represented here in Acts chapter two. Throughout the rest of this book, the prophecy of Jesus is going to be pursued. Jesus said, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come on you and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. And that is what will happen in the book of Acts. They're gonna make it to Rome and then the gospel will continue to spread. Here we are today. And we still have the mandate from Jesus to go to the ends of the earth with the gospel as his witnesses. They recognized the Spirit's work in going to the nations, even in the book of Acts. This is one example of that. Acts chapter 15, verse 7. After there had been much debate, Peter stood up and said to them, Brothers, you are aware that in the early days God made a choice among you that by my mouth the Gentiles would hear the gospel message and believe. And God, who knows the heart, bore witness to them by giving them the Holy Spirit just as he did to us. He made no distinction between us and them, cleansing their hearts by faith. Peter recognizes that the Holy Spirit is meant for all the peoples of the earth. And so all the peoples of the earth must be reached with the gospel. That's what the Holy Spirit is doing. He's sending us so that others can be saved. The Father sent Jesus, Jesus and the Father sent the Holy Spirit. And now the Spirit is sending the church to the ends of the earth so that people can be saved. This is why as a church, we must care about global missions. We must pray for missionaries. We must pray for unreached people groups. We must pray for Bible translation. I was particularly curious about this this week. So they estimate there are 7,300 languages spoken or signed around the world. 5,000 languages are still without a translation of the New Testament. Of those 5,000, 
2,800 work has actually started on those, and 1,600 languages work has not even started. We can be a part of seeing this message translated to go to the ends of the earth. The Spirit did it in a supernatural way when the church started. And the church continues to empower the advance of that effort today. So when the Holy Spirit is active, there begins to be a heart for the nations. How might God be calling you to be a part of his work to the ends of the earth? Let me pray and ask the Holy Spirit's help with this. Father, we praise you for sending your son. We praise you for sending your spirit. God, I ask that you would open our hearts to your word. Would the spirit direct us? Would he convict us where we need to be convicted? Would he lead us where we need to be led? Would we be a church that is full of the Holy Spirit? It's in Jesus' name that I ask. Amen.